Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 381 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Man, so glad to be on this journey with you. Have a, uh, well, a conversation I've been looking forward to for a long time with Scott Sauls, who you've uh, heard before, if you're a longtime listener, and Sarah Anderson. And we're going to talk about cancel culture, public shaming, how to find common ground with people you disagree with, and the crazy that has become the internet and civil discourse, which is mostly uncivil discourse and what on earth has happened to us. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Today's episode is brought to you by Promedia Fire. You can book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth and by ICM, International Cooperating Ministries. Check out their free report, Five Ways Churches Transform Communities by going to icm.org forward slash transform communities. So, Really glad to have you guys on board today. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. It would be amazing if you subscribed and left a rating and review. And we got show notes too. So uh, let us know in the comments or on social how we can serve you. And we are so excited about the lineup heading into 2021. I'm going to tell you about that uh, toward the end. Yeah, we love to tackle really challenging subjects, important subjects, practical subjects, theoretical subjects. And today we're heading a little bit more toward theory. I'm going to finish this episode at the end of the podcast by talking about in what I'm thinking about why we seem to hate each other so much. Five reasons that anger is a new epidemic. So it's a bit of a reflective post. A little bit about our guest. Scott Saul serves as a senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Prior to that, he was the lead and preaching pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City with Tim Keller and served in other ministries as well. He is the author of several books, including his most recent work, A Gentle Answer, and he blogs regularly at Scott Saul's. Also, uh, so glad to have Sarah Anderson. I've known Sarah for years. She is a native of the greater Washington, D.C. area and a current resident of the Bible Belt. Her dad actually ran for president. Uh, Back in, I think, 2000 was the year, Gary Bauer. She writes and speaks on culture and faith. She works for Orange, a nonprofit that partners with families and churches. And uh, this past September, she released her first book, The Space Between Us, How Jesus Teaches Us to Live Together When Politics and Religion Pull Us Apart. So, hey, just a note to file. We did this episode before the election. And if you follow North Point... Well, Andy Stanley just had uh, Sarah on, and her book hit the top 50 in all of Amazon, which is incredible. So really excited for this. Hey, does this sound like your 2020 as a church leader? Number one, you've been faced with constant challenges. Yep. Number two, your team is overwhelmed with all the demands of digital content. Yep. Number three, you struggle with consistent growth in online engagement. Well, don't worry. It's a very common problem. You're not alone. It's also why ProMedia Fire has put their focus on helping churches just like yours with the Church Growth Program. So the Church Growth Program provides your church with a digital coach, creative team, web team, and social team. For less than the cost of a staff hire, you can get an entire team of professionals working for your church regardless of the size. Book a free strategy session today at ProMediaFire.com forward slash church growth. And if you've ever been challenged with the question, what real value does the church bring to a local community? You ever ask yourself about that? Well, 
you can get a solid data-informed answer by heading on over to a free report from ICM. It's called Five Ways Churches Transform Communities. And you can learn about the church around the world, but also this helps you figure out how your church can make an indent. And even, I think you can use this with some of your donors. ICM is the global church developer who for over 30 years has been helping churches around the world by equipping them with discipleship tools and permanent facilities for worship and outreach. They've built over 10,000 church buildings, have planted over 25,000 churches. And if you want to get your hands on their report, Five Ways Churches Transform Communities, go to icm.org forward slash transform communities. That's icm.org forward slash transform communities. Well, I'm so excited to get into today's show. Here is my conversation with Scott Sauls and Sarah Anderson. Well, Scott and Sarah, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have both of you here today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Great to be with you, Carrie. Yeah. So I would love to know, uh, and obviously answer this individually, why each of you got involved in the conversation. And Scott, I know this has become a recurring theme to you, right? Bridge building rather than barrier erecting. But why you got interested in sort of the tone of the current conversation or public discourse that we seem to be having or not having in our mm-hmm. culture right now. Sarah, why don't we start with you? What about, what about you? Where'd that come from? Yeah, well, I'm a mom to two young boys. I have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. And the last presidential election, this one, where it seemed like the the tone in cultural conversation just really took a turn. This was that. Mm. That was the first time they really started noticing what was happening around. Even your kids were like, wait a minute, really? And how, again, how old are your kids? Because these are not teenagers. That's right. 10 and 8 years old. And hearing them begin to say, I don't want to talk about politics because it's so mean. And hearing that they were picking up on that cultural piece of how the conversations were going. And I just thought, that isn't how it's always been. Our tone has not always been that divisive. Um, It's certainly become that recently. But I didn't want to just tell them that there was a better way to do this. I wanted to be part of a, a solution to make it happen. And I wanted them to know that they could experience it not just in theory, but around our kitchen table and around the extended family table and, and be able to have these kinds of conversations that even if they're not happening publicly and they're not happening in the larger kind of sphere, they're happening in our home. Mm. Okay. How about for you, Scott? This has been a, a longstanding thing that you keep you keep turning the jewel on, which I really appreciate about you. Yeah, it's really interesting, Carrie. When I first started thinking and teaching and writing on the theme of reconciliation, uh, and loving across the lines of difference. I had a lot of things going on with respect to our ministry here in Nashville. Uh, I was asked to come in and, and do revitalization work on um, you know, a historic church here in Nashville. It actually is the church that, that primarily sent Tim and Kathy Keller to New York to plant Redeemer. So we, we came you know, from there to here. And so there's a lot of history there. But the church was aging, and uh, they really, you know, were desiring fresh vision and leadership to sort of recapture uh, younger generations. And and of course, what what I was aware of uh, coming in was was that if if, if you're going to talk about trying to do an intergenerational thing in today's climate, you're also talking about cross political differences. You're talking about a, a lot of differences generationally, and so so we just started there. And then started getting into, you know, you know, conversations about race, conversations about, um, you know, urban people and suburban people, because we've got a little bit of both sensibilities in our church. We started to see this political diversity emerge. 
And with that, a lot of tension, a lot of misunderstanding. And so we, we really just kind of by default turned that into a central theme of, of our teaching. And, and the timing was, was, was pretty crazy because this was just when kind of the outrage culture thing was starting to, to take off. It was around 2015. And, you know, here we are a few years later and, and, just seems like things are getting harder and harder and um, you know reasonable sane voices like like the two of you are, are becoming more and more necessary and mr. Rogers is popular again because we all yeah. want mr. Rogers yeah. back right how many you know you both raised it you talked about your kids uh, Sarah and then Scott you talked about generational and it's something I don't think gets enough air because people tend to think in monolithic terms but do either of you have thoughts on whether so much of the partisanship or the anger is in part generational. Do you think generations behave differently around this? Yeah, I think they do. I see that in my own family. I think we've experienced that with my parents and and my generation a little bit. Um, I don't think it's that way for everybody, but I just, I realized when I came out with this book last month that the number of people I've heard from who are buying it for their adult children, parents buying it for the adult children so they could begin to have civil conversations around these um, conflicting ideas again. And I'm not, I'm not sure why that is, but I think there's a tendency for um, the older generation to think that the younger generation is just kind of cave to culture. They're, they're, they've mm. lost, you know, lost the plot. And I think there's the tendency for the younger generation to think that the older generation has stopped evolving and they're not willing to change. And so I think there's kind of a, a default thinking there that isn't generous in their motives. But I, I don't know why it plays out that way. But I think when we, when we assume that of each other, um, we're not taking into account the different experiences our generations have had that have led them to believe the way they do. And you've got an eight and 10 year old going, why are people so mean? Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Scott, what's your take on, on the generations? Yeah, I think the older generations that critique the younger ones for caving to culture don't realize that they caved to culture as well. It was just a different culture. Um, <laughs> there was the culture of the religious right and the moral majority movement, uh, a, a failed project on every by every measure in terms of persuasive movement. Uh, uh, was a failed effort. And, and that was a cave to a certain kind of culture. And, uh, and so you do have these, these sort of differences in sensibilities and all, you know, Barna and everybody else is saying, well, the reason why younger generations, uh, you know, particularly white evangelical younger generations are drifting away from the institution of, of the local church, they'll say it's because our parents and grandparents generation conflated their right leaning politics with, with their faith. And, now, what younger generations are at risk of is conflating their left-leaning politics with with their faith, and it's going to be interesting to see what their kids say uh, in you know fifteen years or so. But um, really, I think what you've got is two generations that 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 if if everybody started by being quick to listen and slow to speak instead of the other way around, uh, quick to speak and slow to listen, uh, if they reverse that, if we all reverse that, I, I think there could be a really beautiful sharpening effect where you know younger people realize they can learn from the older generations and, and the older generations can learn that, hey, I'm not done learning yet. Uh, there's a lot that our kids and grandkids can teach us. I was going to ask the question, and I don't know whether it's a good question, like which generation is loudest, but I wonder if it's that they're all kind of loud just in their own way and on their own channels. Is, is that fair or is that not fair? Yeah, I would say that it is. <laughs> I would say that's pretty accurate. And, and it's, I think there's almost something in 
every generation that's kind of being raised up that we're everybody's rebelling against something, right? Everybody's yeah. like living in reaction to whatever it was that was passed down to them. And so I think Scott's right that there's going to be some kind of balance we're going to have to figure out, but it almost is we have to, we overcompensate. We move in the other direction. We got to figure out a way to kind of meet in the middle and, and balance out. Is every generation loud in its own way, Scott? Absolutely. Uh-huh. No doubt about it. Yeah. I don't yeah but my loud is right. I just said. want you to know that. Okay. I've got the correct <laughs> loud. Right. So what's well, the Pharisee spirit that, that I think every human heart uh, has to come to terms with at some point uh, where it says in what Luke 18, nine, uh, there are those who trust in themselves that they're righteous and look down on other people with contempt, you know, mm. self-righteousness and contempt leads to a loud, you know, off-putting prop proclamation right um and so i I think you're on to something carrie uh sarah i want to ask you about um growing up because your dad ran for president i want you to tell leaders about that you were kind of raised in almost is it that moral majority you know poster child you were you were the teenage poster child (laughs) apologies to your dad my bad i didn't realize that (laughs) i'm so sorry about that um, yeah, I, I was I was uh, raised just outside Washington D.C. in a very political family. Um, my parents both loved politics. They they uh, moved to D.C. after college, met working at the Republican National Committee. Um, they my dad worked on the Reagan campaign and then in the Reagan administration as Under Secretary of Education and then Chief Domestic Policy Advisor to the President. Um, and then in 1999, he ran for the Republican primary in the presidency um, himself. So that that world, that political world was very much a part of our religious world as well. And I'm not sure I want to be very careful because I don't think it was explicitly passed down to me that they were synonymous. But I think as a child, you're, you're only um, absorbing, absorbing and observing what you know and what you see. And so to me, it felt synonymous the, the Christianity and the faith and the and the Republican kind of morals, they were interchangeable terms to me. It, I didn't know that it was possible to be a Christ follower and a Democrat. It didn't, those seemed like mutually exclusive terms my mm. whole life. And, and it wasn't because I heard, um, you know, them being talked, Democrats being talked badly about necessarily. It was just kind of that was what we were surrounded with. And so, you know, on one hand, we had this very patriotic love America. You know, I had America themed birthday parties growing up. It was just like that was kind of our our MO. And then also the evangelical poster child of, you know, the true love weights ceremonies and the I kiss dating goodbye. And I tell the story in the book of that my true love weights lo- ceremony was filmed by a 60 minutes news crew because my dad was being interviewed for the show at the time. So there just was kind of like this weird interwoven idea, but they all seemed one and the same. And it really wasn't until college where I realized it could be different. You could, there was a different way. I was going to say, and then you went to college, right? Well, but interestingly, I went to a small conservative Christian college. Uh-huh. 99% of us were Christian evangelicals and Republicans, but I saw a poster for the Young Democrats Club. And I thought, I didn't think we had Democrats here. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. what the thing that got me was the sign that said, Jesus loves Democrats too. And I thought, well, sure, but does he like them as much? <laughs> As Republicans, mm. like, let's be honest. Kind of like he loves tax collectors yeah, exactly. and prostitutes right. and things like that. Yeah. Mm. But it was that really what started this crack in my worldview, that there was a different way to follow Jesus that did not necessarily have to line up with the uh, Republican Party line. Wow. Okay. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to um, 
this isn't a partisan podcast, but uh, let's just say your views have shifted on a number of things. You talk about that in the book over the over the years, and you how do you see the world differently now at this stage as a mom of two young sons? Yeah, well, you know that's that's another reason why I got involved in this. Our my family has remained very political. Um, my my brother and sister um, have spent their entire professional careers in politics. Um, so we haven't had the luxury of not having these conversations, um, as we started to kind of diverge in different areas in our views and opinions, we couldn't not talk about it because it's how they all made a living. Um, so it was kind of like, this is going to come up regardless. We have to figure out a way to do it. And, um, I would just say, I I think what I've, what I've seen is just maybe more nuance in the world than I originally thought living in DC. DC is such a bubble. It's such a tribal place. It's really easy to fall into that us versus them thinking, and I saw that when my dad ran for president. I saw it when it was Republicans running against Republicans and the animosity between the two, right? Mm. It was so easy to make enemies out of anybody who would have normally been a friend. So I, I see that it's easy to fall into that way of thinking. Leaving Washington, I think, was a real gift to me and to our family to begin to see that there was a nuance. There were so many of these issues that I thought were so clear cut that when I just learned the stories of people on the other side made me realize that um, politics is personal. It's not all just legislation, that there's real people it affects on both sides. And that's just a lot more complicated than we give it credit for. And anytime it comes across as clear cut and black and white and very obvious, we're probably missing a large part of the story. Wow. Now, Scott, you've lived all over the place. So you go from New York City and literally from Times Square, almost in New York City, downtown Manhattan uh, to Nashville. What are some of the differences that you have seen between how New Yorkers think, you know, and and what it's like in Nashville? What are what are some of the the differences you've seen or anything from your own journey that would reflect a continued change in in perspective? Yeah, I mean, I quite honestly, Carrie, I see a lot of a lot more similarities than differences. I mean, Nashville's, you know, a lot more open, leafy, green space, right? Uh, living quarters are much larger. You tend to own your home instead of rent. Uh, you know, it's just life here is a lot more comfortable, uh, which has its pros and cons. I mean, we, we kind of love the grit and grind of, of being in the city and living the pedestrian life and sweating like crazy every day, no matter what we were doing. And we love sort of the 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 international presence there of just having the whole globe uh, in this concentrated, you know, space of this, this small Island. But in terms of mindset, sensibility, uh, if New York and Los Angeles got married, Nashville would be born. Um, (laughs) And I think that's part of why, you know, New York and LA have had this sort of love affair with one another. You know, there's a lot of moving back and forth and uh, the Los Angeles times and the New York times have, have have identified Nashville as what they call the third coast. Uh, so mm. Nashville has sort of been co-opted into that. Now there's like a trinity of, of, of cities, I guess, for good or for ill. But um, I think Nashville has, has the best and the worst of both New York and Los Angeles, um, you know, here kind of bundled up into one city. I mean, the state governments here, arts and entertainment, higher education, major universities, the Silicon Valley of healthcare, which we resent. We'd rather Silicon Valley be called the Nashville of technology, but it is what it is. <laughs> um, 
but it's it's a very much a culture making uh, city, uh, and so there was a lot of sort of transferable um, stuff with, with respect to how we did ministry. Now, I will say that you know the area of Nashville that we're in probably you know leans more red state than blue state uh, in a similar proportion that that the Redeemer church community leaned maybe a little bit more blue state than red state, but, but politically diverse. And, Mm. um, you know, to your point, uh, Sarah, a minute ago, you know, I, I used, I was, I became a Christian later in life, like around age 20. And I thought that to be a Christian was to be a Republican and be a Republican was to be a Christian. And, and over time though, what, what I've discovered is, you know, probably a lot of the things that you've discovered is that there are all kinds of justice issues. Um, the, the, in addition to, not instead of, but in addition to the unborn, right? Uh, there are all kinds of justice issues, uh, race, poverty, you know, immigrant policy, refugees, et cetera, that, 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 that ought to make comprehensively pro-life Christians think very carefully and nuanced about their positions. And, and it also ought to make us pause to realize that you can have two churches in the same metropolitan area, just in zip, different zip codes, both churches believe the Bible 100% from cover to cover. Most of the members over here are going to say, it's hard for me to fathom being a Christian and a Democrat. And then most Christians over here would say, also on our ba- our, our reading of the Bible, you know, tells us that it's hard to imagine being a Christian and a Republican. And, and so what that says is either this group doesn't know how to read the Bible, and this group does, this group gets it all right, this group gets it all wrong, or more likely... Um, because this is everywhere in cities everywhere, more likely both groups have blind spots and both groups need one another in order to get a more comprehensive full picture. And I, I love what, you know, like Michael Ware and Justin Gibney are doing with Ann campaign. And, and um, you know, I think there are a lot more voices emerging in evangelical world and in Christian world that want to think more in a more nuanced way and build more bridges. I, I hope that's the future. One of the problems I think that that came with associating a political party with our faith was it really eliminated the need for critical thinking. Because if you could just assign God as giving you permission to believe what your party believed, then you didn't have to actually engage anybody on the other side because God was on your side. So I think that I think that led to a lot of us to get, reach a certain age and to be like, well, that doesn't make sense. Because the more I start to think about it, and the more I start to realize the people on the other side aren't just this evil, wrong, wicked, whatever, that you realize there's a lot more thinking I have to do with this. So it's an easy way out to assign God to a political party, but I think it it actually hurts us long-term and in, in becoming critical thinkers and engaging culture in a, in a nuanced way. So that is challenging. I mean, even for me, and I, I don't share these yeah. publicly very often, but I have views. And if you have a different view, I'm also an Enneagram 8, I'll be like, <laughs> I, I don't know how any rational person could think that, but it's pretty clear that that's true. So I think that's part of human nature. Why have we gotten louder and why have we gotten angrier? I think because, you know, election year, no election year, and this will be playing out after the U.S. election. So who knows? As I was joking with you before, we may not have a planet. Like, I don't know. You know, maybe this will never air. Who knows? But um you know, we, we just get loud about everything these days. I mean, and we're so offendable. Why do you think it got louder and why do you think it's gotten angrier? I don't know if it has. Uh, really? I, just, I, just, I just think that the noise has been amplified by devices. Um, I, you know, aggression and outrage started in Genesis chapter three. 
when when Adam points his finger at God and says, "The woman you gave me, uh, you know, she's culpable for the fruit that I ate," and then in the next chapter, uh, you know, the the first <laughs> the first pair of brothers we have, one of them kills the other yeah. out of envy, and then we get you know all of Old Testament and New Testament history showing that that people just can't seem to get along, and it goes back to that that. Pharisee spirit, and you know that that you know Kathy Keller says the natural religion of the human heart is self righteousness, and we're we're always looking to put ourselves above. And this is what Darwin got right, uh, you know that that the strong want to eat the weak. Everybody, you know, uh, without the Holy Spirit, without the intervening kindness and grace of God, we all want to dominate. We all want to be on top. We all want to want to win, and and that leads us to you know, compare and compete and, and put down and, you know, form communities around a common enemy. And, and so I, I just, I think it's louder just because we have more ways of, you know, exposing ourselves to the noise. And, and the thing about the noise is just like kindness, outrage is contagious. Um, you know, if, if, if I start complaining, it, it probably won't be long before one or both of you start complaining. Uh, if I start rejoicing and 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 you know catching somebody doing good instead of catching somebody doing wrong, it's probably not. It's long before one or both of you is going to start rejoicing with me, right? So there's this contagious effect that we have on each other, and you know when outrage is everywhere, of course, it just feeds on itself. Sarah, what's your take? Uh, louder and angrier. I would say, I think we probably go in cycles of this. You know, I've tried to pay attention to some social um, psychologists and economists. And one of the things I've heard them say is that um, more divisive cultures tend to come on the back end of financial crisis. And so when you look at when this kind of started to happen, that 2007, 2008, and the financial crisis, and, and the reason is because once the financial recovery starts happening, um, the divide between the more affluent and the less affluent grows wider and gets people mm. more angry. Mm. Um, and then around that same time, there was also the incorporation of the uh, retweet button on Twitter mm -hmm. and the like button on Facebook. And I think we saw that, yes, kindness is contagious for sure, but outrage, I think, spreads a lot more quickly. And I think we saw that th with the introduction of these um, social media platforms and being able to um, project our, our outrage so easily that it started to spread. And in a lot of ways, it became a version of a mob mentality. And what we know about a mob mentality is that there is a a lower cognitive and moral threshold for a, a, a mob than an individual, right? So you get a lot of people saying the same kinds of things, hiding behind a screen, not even in a physical mob, but hiding behind a screen. You're going to have them doing a lot of things that they wouldn't necessarily be doing mm -hmm. individually on their own. So I think mm -hmm. that all of these things kind of created this perfect storm um, in, in our culture. And, and I think we're, we're seeing the results in that now. I want to believe that enough people are paying attention to um, the way that outrage culture has fueled what shows up in our timelines and that the the articles that we want to click on are there to keep our keep us entertained and on the screen longer more than they are there to inform us so mm. i think the more we start to pay attention to these things that we can start to change the narrative a little bit and at least begin to act more proactively in how we engage um online and in person yeah i'd love to get your thoughts on the rise of cancel culture because i think there is like a mob mentality that's out there and uh, as I was saying before we started recording, you know, I'm all for accountability. I think that can be great and transparency and, 
you would hope that leaders have integrity. You know, I would hope that I have some integrity, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not talking about being held to account for for things that you did wrong or, um, you know, being called out in those moments when you need to. But I think I think we all know would would assume we all would think I think we've gone beyond that. We're into cancel culture. So do you want to give us like? a working definition of you in your head of what cancel culture means to you. And then a theory on how we got here. Cause I'm just very anxious uh, to find out what others have to say about it. We haven't really done an episode on this and yet I know it's something that a lot of leaders live in fear of or, or are part of, to be honest with you, just like, no, I'm going to jump on this person and they're gone. We're going to, we're going to get rid of them. So w- thoughts on that, Scott, how about you? Man, I mean, it, it, it is a, it is a tenuous environment, um, you know, around the, the sort of cancel culture theme for sure. I remember hearing Andy Stanley say a few years ago about pastors, and this was before all this stuff, you know, started heating up. He said, all I have to do is say five wrong words behind a microphone and it would completely blow up everything I've ever done uh, in ministry, just five wrong words. And, um, you know, I, I, I think we've, we've just, as we've gotten more and more heated, as we've gotten more and more defensive in our posture, as we've gotten more afraid ourselves, you know, we, we've just assumed this, this rival spirit and, you know, the Pharisees did it, right? I mean, what, what happens? Jesus calls a dead man out of a tomb. And what do the Pharisees want to do? They, 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 they start plotting about how they're going to kill Lazarus. I mean, how insane is that? And they want to, you know, they're, they're plotting too how they want to kill Jesus. And, and you know, I, I, I think behind the cancel behavior oftentimes is, is, you know, the feeling of being threatened. That if they win, then then we're going to lose, uh, and and you know so there's that. But then I also think there's this 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 safe spaces thing that that ha- that emerged a few years ago on college campuses, where uh, now it was imperative not only that we keep students physically safe, but also emotionally safe. Uh, in other words, you know, professor, professors and administrators, uh, the unpardonable sin is to make a student feel uncomfortable uh, by sharing ideas or expressing ideas that don't match with their ideas. And what, what that's called is a non-education. <laughs> and, 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 and yet, you know, if, if, you, can't, if you can't teach you know, the political commentator, uh, Van Jones, I think, puts it really well when he talks about safe spaces. He says, I I want my kids to be safe physically, but I don't want them to be safe emotionally. I want them to be emotionally strong. I I want them to have well-formed ideas, you know, in relationship with Enneagram 8s like Carrie, uh, where where they can, you know, freely exchange disagreements and be sharpened and be able to stand on on their own convictions because they're well-formed. but but I think we, I think there's been a, a a culture that's developed and and you know the very liberal journalist Nicholas Kristof has written about this and about academia uh, and and news outlets. He says that you know the unpardonable sin is to be a conservative. Uh, he says you know we're we're all about tolerance as as you know liberal elite thinkers and academics, 
unless you're conservative. <laughs> and then and then all we want to do with you is shut you down. Now, this is Nicholas Kristof, who's very liberal. Uh, Kirsten, Kirsten Powers has has done similar things in, in her work of saying, look, um, you know, we're, we're, we're actually a lot more conservative than, than, than conservatives are in terms of our intolerance for voices that don't, don't agree with ours. And so I think it's important on the liberal conservative continuum to realize that everybody has capacity for self-righteousness. Everybody has the capacity to be oversensitive and, and therefore everybody has the capacity to want to shut other people down. Um, now that's about ideas. And now I think Carrie, you, you also talked about behaviors, which it's important to, hold accountable when, when, you know, powerful people are, are exploiting less mm-hmm. powerful people, uh, and hurting and abusing less powerful people because they're more powerful. That's, that's a whole nother conversation. It is a whole other conversation, but I, I think Andy's point is very valid that you say five wrong words and that could be the end or, you know, a, a major aberration. We see that almost daily. Sarah, any thoughts on the emergence of the rise of cancel culture and where that comes from? And w- what's your take on that? Yeah, well, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said fear. When both of you were talking about a fear, there's a fear of saying the wrong thing, and then we've got a we've overcompensated, um, and we're fearful of our kids being made uncomfortable, or our kids feeling you know our kids themselves don't want to feel uncomfortable, and we do that, we develop a lack of resilience, which is not good for anybody. And I think we're we're right in saying that the. The conflict is a good thing. And what cancel culture is eliminating is a lack of discourse and civil discourse. Mm. And it's we can't sharpen our ideas unless we're in conflict with one another. No one is going to arrive at the best idea on their own, right? I mean, the biblical principles, iron, iron sharpens iron. So I think the the rise of cancel culture is is also the the rise of a lack of intelligence in our conversation culturally, because we're we're not allowing ourselves to engage with people who think differently and to test out these ideas and to develop the critical thinking. Um, but I think the, the, the snapshot or kind of the definition that I would use for cancel culture and um, that way I see it is that it, it really is just taking a snapshot of someone's life and building their entire kind of reputation around that moment without taking into account their past, um, how their past shaped them or set them up for this good or bad and without realizing the potential of their future. And I think that's just a dangerous road to go on. None of us want to be judged by a snapshot of one moment in our lives. But again, I think, you know, like we said, it, it stemmed from, I think, good intentions of wanting to hold things accountable. But I think it was an overcorrection, again, moving in that direction of um, we want to keep powerful people in line. But now what we're doing is we're just shutting down conversation, shutting down any possibility for wrongdoing and then redemption on the backside of it. Both of you write about this. I touched on it a little bit in my last book. Uh, Didn't see it coming, but I'm really concerned about the death of conversation. I've had extensive conversation with Gordon McDonald about that on this podcast. He sees it as a similar problem. He remembers more civil discourse, people asking questions, um, I would love to get your view on what are some of the hallmarks because we're all implicated in this, right? I mean, I'm I'm not saying I'm not, you know, I'm not perfect behavior. Sometimes I shut people down. Sometimes I judge quickly. I'm perfectly capable of self-righteousness. What are some markers of healthy, respectful dialogue? And, uh, and then, you know, the opposite of that too, where it's like, no, when you start to venture into this territory, it's not really conversation. Um, Sarah, what about you? You, you wrote quite, quite extensively on that. And so Scott, but what are some markers of healthy conversation? What are some markers of unhealthy shutdown conversation? 
Well, I think you're right. It's it's definitely dying. Um, and mm. I think what we're learning as it's dying is that civil, civil conversation is a muscle that atrophies without use. Mm. And we're seeing what has happened as a result of that. It's not like riding a bike where you can just pick it right back up and assume everything's going to go great. So I think some of the markers for a civil conversation that we need to continue to practice because it's not just going to show up and be great at the first time. Um, I think it's it starts with a, a posture of humility and um, curiosity towards each other. And I think that, again, this is what I've learned in my own family. Um, they are so great at asking questions of me um, without just immediately trying to shut me down and vice versa. It's not just trying to change each other's minds. I think that um, the language I, we've used around it sometimes is we're not trying to make each other in our own image. And I think that's when we realize conversation starts to go off the rails, when we are trying to engage with somebody in order to conform them into what we're thinking. But if we have a posture of curiosity towards Towards one another, then it's to understand each other. And, and I think when we have the right goal, first of all, trying to change someone's mind, that's above our pay grade. Like we can't, <laughs> we can't control that. That's out of our hands. But mm. being able to understand each other, we do have a role to play in that. We can control that. And so I think that we need to realize what what is it that we actually have power over? And, and I think we'd be a lot less frustrated if we just dropped the, the the idea of trying to change each other's minds every time and just started to, to learn and to ask questions about how somebody landed on this particular position instead of just immediately rushing to a judgment. Mm-hmm. What do you think about good conversation guidelines, Scott, and unhelpful ones? Well, I mean, go to the master himself. You know, Jesus said, uh, if you see a speck in somebody else's eye, uh, deal with the log in your own eye first, and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. And, and he, he doesn't say, then you won't feel like you need to remove the speck from somebody else's eye. He says, then you'll be able to. Uh, if there's a speck in my eye and you see it, you notice it and it's there. Uh, it's a mercy. It's a kindness for you to help me remove it so I don't get an infection and go blind, right? Um, and so I can see clearly too. But, but I, I think that concept of going into, and, and it's, it's counterintuitive, it's countercultural to think this way, but going into especially conflict, disagreement, spirited discussion, whatever we want to call it, um, assuming that I'm the biggest hypocrite in this conversation, (laughs) you know, at least mentally assuming that even if emotionally, I think the other person is, is just full of hot air to, to at least have the mental discipline to assume that, that there are some things that I'm going to miss here. Like Tim Keller talks about, um, you know, his unfair critics, which public people have a lot of unfair critics. And he, you know, Tim will tell you, he's written about this. He's gotten more criticized for views that uh, have been attributed to him that he doesn't hold that than he has of his actual views. And I think all three of us can, can identify with that and relate to that on some level. But he says, even when that happens, it's important to be careful not to be completely dismissive of the critic, to hold them in contempt, to call them an idiot, uh, but, but to get in a private space and to consider, is there a kernel of truth in there? Uh, even if 89% of it is completely off base, is there a kernel of truth in there that I can learn from? And and that'll be my starting point before I engage that person in conversation. Now, Tim's a lot better at that than I am. 
Um, but it, it is what Jesus taught, uh, that, that no matter who we are, like imagine if we have two people in a conflict and they're both thinking that way, like, like, like I'm first a learner here and then secondly, I'm a critic, but first a learner. Um, you know, Jesus was pretty smart. You know, he doesn't get a credit. He gets credit for being loving and kind and sacrificial. We don't really talk a whole lot about how smart, how intelligent Jesus is, mm. uh, just about human relationships. Remember, he's a wonderful counselor. Like he's the best therapist you'll ever have for relationships. And, you know, just, you know, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and in the sight of whoever you're encountering. Um, and there'll be an uplifting uh, of some sort. Um, but I, th I think we get into trouble, though, when we reverse it and we, we act like the log is in that person's eye. And if, if I have anything in my eye, it's just a little speck. Sarah, you mentioned um, conversation and curiosity, asking questions. I'm curious because there's a few years between you and me. You're at a different stage of life. So um, do you find that when you're out in social situations, that question asking is a natural discipline? My wife and I have noticed a decline over the years where we can go to an event for an hour and a half and nobody asks us a single question. And we'll be asking people about them. Tell us about the kids. How are you? How's Rodney? Oh, that's a really nice place. Like, when did you get that redesigned or, you know, that kind of thing. But we, what, what do you discover with your generation? Yeah, I, I would agree with that, actually. <laughs> We've had conversations in our family about, um, we'll go do the same thing, come home and be like, man, I learned everything about them. I don't think they learned a single thing about us. And that's fine. I'm not like ready to- Yeah, yeah, that's not the but, goal. But, just, but the, the point is there's a lack of- um, a social connection because it's all one way. And, and when we come, when we talk about raising our boys, we're, we're literally mm. trying to teach them to ask us, how was your day? Mm. <laughs> start with that question, you know, before you immediately start to unload what your day was mm. like, there's a, an exchange mm. there. So I think you're right. The, I don't know if that has to do with social media and just our, um, our willingness to just project our life online and assuming everybody wants to hear about it. And so we think the same. Okay. Thing. That is exactly my completely untested theory with zero data behind it, but that it's been about the last decade. And what do we do? We post about, Oh, I'm interviewing Scott and Sarah. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And I just assume in real life that you're interested in every trivial detail of my life uh, without, without reciprocity, right? Like I find the most life-giving relationships to be mutual relationships where maybe some days it's not 50, 50, right? You're going through a really tough time. Scott's going through a really tough time. And I do 90% of the listening, 10% of the talking. There's not a lot of questions back, but in a normal exchange, it's got to come out somewhere in the middle where I'm as interested in you as you are in me. And that actually defines healthy human relationship. But you're, you're seeing that absent in your social circles as well. And I think you're right that, that I think it's interesting. You said the most life-giving relationships are the ones where there's a back and forth. Hmm. It's not that where it's people who agree with you and everything you say. No. There's a dialogue of back, back and forth. People who are actually interested in you. Yes. And I think my generation is, seeing, is saying you need to be like me to have them. A relationship. And then we can all agree with each other in our That's agreement right. circle. That's right. Interesting. Scott, love your take on it. You ever heard, uh, have you ever heard that, uh, that little skit that Groucho Marx did uh, with another character? And he's just going on and on and on and on about himself. So here's another thing about me. One more thing about me. And there's also this about me. And then he stops. He has this moment of clarity and, 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 and awakening. He says, oh my goodness, I have been talking about me 
this entire time. I'm so sorry. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> and and I, I, I just can't get that out of my head as I'm hearing yeah. both of you talk. But I mean, you're, you're a professional question asker, Carrie. And so, I mean, you have a way of sort of drawing people in just by the way that you show, show such interest. Um, and so I, I could see why, you know, somebody might just get kind of swept up in, in that. But, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we've, we've come home from, I mean, I mean, even this past month, I can think of three different times where we've had dinner with some people and, and either Patty or I would ask the other, you know, did we tell them anything about ourselves or, or was this just us interviewing them about their lives? I know, and, I know. And, and, and we wonder, you know, like, are we that, are, are we that couple sometimes or am I that person sometimes? Maybe. I've asked that I, question I too. I know. Sometimes I play experiments too, depending on how well it's yeah. like. I'm I'm just going to ask questions and see how long people can go. And one guy just I didn't even ask a question, talked about himself for 28 minutes. Like we're without, sitting on a park without stopping. I, I thought I eventually got oh. my watch out. I'm like, okay, That's I got a sermon. It was 28 a, minutes a without sermon a sermon at Connexus Church. All about you should him. capture that and put it on video. I know I should have my phone like strategically uh-huh. positioned. I just and and I wonder, you know, it's it's this symbiotic thing where we're online, we're in real life, we're online, we're in real life, and and I think your observation, Sarah, that you know, I just want to find people who agree with me, who think like me, who dress like me, who vote like me, and then we're all going to tell everybody else how wrong they are. But it really makes for awkward social dynamics. Scott, I mean, we're, we're a little similar, more similar in age. Have you noticed a, a devolution, a, a de-evolution of conversation over the years or, or not so? I, I you know, I, I'm not a sociologist. I haven't examined, you know, generations closely enough, but I wonder if there's something in there related to the shift in parenting philosophies. Parents now, um, I think make their kids the center of their universe a lot more than they did when I was growing up. Yeah. Um, where like it's child centered, everything. I mean, parents are following their kids in and out of this, that, or the other. I mean, you, you probably have this dynamic at your churches where, you know, people will disappear for three months and they'll show up and they'll say, well, you know, this was soccer season. And, and I'm like, soccer season, like for your, for your seven year old. I mean, like, like, I could see like maybe if your kid was like 16 and a college prospect or something, this is for your seven year old who's not even athletic. And, and, you know, you, you just hit pause on some of the most important aspects of your life because your seven year old wanted to do travel sports, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, that's a, that's make sure they're really good before you make those yeah. kinds of life changing decisions for the whole family. But, but, the, th- the theme being whatever the kids want, like we don't want our kids to not like us. It, 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 it sort of feels like that's become a parenting philosophy that everything revolves around our kids liking us. And when, when actually the best kind of parenting is like the best kind of leadership, you, 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 people need to struggle with your leadership and your parenting sometimes. Uh, otherwise, who's leading who? And, and so I think it's, it's sort of created possibly this, this just narcissistic assumption that that everything we do and therefore everything the world does is about me. I'm the hero of the story. I'm the center of the story. And everybody else is a supporting actor in my story. I think there are a lot of parents that behave like supporting actors in their in their kids' story hmm. rather than as, you know, 
the, the healthiest home, you know, Paul Tripp and all the, you know, great, you know, parenting experts would say the healthiest homes are the marriage-centered homes, not the kid-centered homes. And, you know, you, 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 you put the kid in the middle, it's like putting planet Earth in the middle of the solar system and trying to turn the sun into, into a planet. It just will throw everything off. Um, but then I think these little guys, the, these devices and, and the way that we have, and I don't, I don't know the answer to this because it's really hard when your kid is going to be socially isolated, uh, in their social world, if they don't become a phone addict, like if they don't become a phone addict, the cost of that is they will have fewer friends and, and less social life. And so it's like this terrible catch 22 that, leads our kids to either be lonely or narcissistic. Take your pick, you know, take, wow. make your choice. Um, but those are, those are armchair observations, um, you know, by a non-expert. So Sarah, you, you spent a lot of time in the child education space. Uh, that's kind of your day job as well. In addition to being a mom, what's your take on that? What do you, what do you think? Do you see a connection? Any, any thoughts, any revisions to that yeah. idea? Yeah, I think it's probably true. I think, you know, we're having conversations like this all the time with our, with my husband and I for our kids' future. You know, what does this look like when it comes to devices and all the research, you know, the phones have been around long enough to know the research is coming out that we know it's not good for developmentally still developing teenagers to have access, immediate access to a social media world. So it's not just the phones. I think it's the the social media platforms that are even more of a problem. You know, I've heard um, social scientists say that they, they think that middle school principals need to be saying, your kids should not have a phone. Like we're, right now we're just kind of... Um, kind of ambiguous about it. And every parent kind of makes their own decision, but we're seeing developmentally, this is not good. There's a sharp increase when it comes to um, mental decline in mental health, um, rise of suicide, especially in girls, but in boys as well. And that the, the, the rise in these mental health issues is directly connected to a little object that can tell us in an instant what our reputation is and whether people like us or don't like us or what they don't like about us. And, you know, that's hard for adults to handle. I know that as a, as a middle schooler, there's no way I would have been able to handle that well. So I'm, you know, I'm nervous about what that means for the generation. And I'm nervous for, you know, the parents who want to do it a different way. But like you said, Scott, there's just, it takes a lot of people to turn the ship and you don't want to be the only family that makes that decision and then hurt your kids in the process. But you're right. I think it is that making that decision between, do I want a mentally healthy child who is socially isolated or do I want someone who is connected? But what kind of connection is it really? Is it to actual relationships and people or is it just to these platforms and what kind of kids are we creating in the process have you guys seen the social dilemma yeah. on ne on netflix what are, i'm curious what your thoughts are on that as a as a child development expert oh well i wouldn't call myself an expert or, <laughs> but yeah 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 okay. um no i think i think it's exactly right um in a lot of ways i think i loved the, the connections it was making politically to a lot of things that that these echo chambers we've started to live in that before it used to be that we would kind of um, choose to live in these echo chambers, but now the algorithms are creating echo chambers for us and that we're, we're living in these spaces without even realizing it. So, you know, I, th and I think it's always interesting when the people who have created something are making the decision to not expose their own children um, to a product or to a platform. That to me is very telling about what the kind right. of long-term effects right. are. On this, but it's just it's so difficult because social media is still very new, but it's it's old enough to know it's not moving in a great direction, but yeah. it's far enough along we don't it's hard to correct course 
at this point. Well, and there's an argument when it comes into cancel culture and everything. And, and I want to come back to, you know, even shaming, because that's a big issue. If you're raising kids and they're on social media, group shaming is a big deal. And that's kind of what cancel culture is at its heart. It's just we're going to assassinate you and shame you and that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on, on the social dilemma, it's a, it's a really hard thing. First of all, I'm not a teenager or middle schooler. So, you know, I'm an adult who has a long pre-digital memory. That, I think, is a blessing right now. I lived, uh, I've always been technological, but, you know, it's sort of last quarter of my life, not not, not half my life or three quarters of my life. So mm-hmm. I have a long pre-digital memory. But, um, you know, it's a debate. We have this on my team all the time. Like, here we are doing this podcast, and you're, you're in Atlanta and Nashville and Toronto, and we're able to do this and we're bringing it to leaders around the world uh, using the very thing that we're debating. Um, so do, you know, I, I was having this conversation this week, like, do I just go with my manual typewriter into a cabin in the woods off the grid and write books for obscurity and never market them? I mean, it's almost like saying the church isn't allowed to use the printing press or uh, we're not allowed to use the phone or we're not allowed to use... Uh, the car, right? You almost become Amish in your approach. And this is, this is you, you can look at the history of the Industrial Revolution. Everything, I think it was in The Social Dilemma, they said, you know, well, they didn't say it in these words, but a similar quote would be, uh, we are technology's parent, but we're also its child. We don't know what it's doing to us. And so what we try to do in this company is we try to be a place for good people on the internet to gather we try to moderate the conversation. I try to have life-giving conversations like this that recalibrate people going, oh, that's the crazy that's going on. Yeah, I was involved in online shaming. Okay, I probably don't want to do that in the future or, you know, whatever. But yeah, it's a really tough dilemma. And with kids, my answer is, thank goodness, mine are in their 20s. You know, we kind of dodged that bullet. It was still dial-up when they were super young. And the age was basically high school. And you know, I still think there's issues there, but it wasn't like the eight-year-old who wants an iPhone for Christmas or the 10-year-old. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about shaming. You've got a whole section in your book. Uh, Scott, I'd love to know, like, from your biblical perspective, both of you, um, you know, Jesus taught in an honor-shame culture, and there seems to be a lot of bullying and a lot of shaming happening online. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Sarah? Yeah, well, I think um, the idea of shaming is, to me, it's connected to that idea of contempt, which there's Mm. been a lot of research around um, relationships that marriages that go the distance. Contempt is the number one contributing factor. John Gottman. Yep. Yes, exactly. So I think when um, what they have in common is we're we're talking about the essence of a person and not what they've done. And so I think what Mm. cancel culture has turned into, we're not making a snap decision um, or snap judgment on what somebody did. We're saying you are bad. I don't want to just cancel this action that you did. I have contempt for who you are. And so there's a way I think that an anger in a way is healthier towards what people sometimes do or have done wrongly because it's saying I believed you were better than that and you disappointed me. So mm-hmm. anger is telling me there you, there was a bar that I thought you could have reached and you didn't reach it. And so I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated about that. Contempt is saying you, there's no hope for you. There's no chance to kind of fix this. And I think that that's a really dangerous message because when we look at the theology of Jesus, how Jesus interacted with people, he was never writing the end of people's stories for them. He was always leaving room for restoration and redemption and resurrection. And so when we write the stories, the end of people's stories by saying, there's no chance for you to recover. This is just who you are. I think Mm -hmm. we're eliminating any incentive to be better. Why would we want to improve ourselves when we can't ever be accepted back into the community. So that's 
I think that's a big deal culturally, but for Christians especially, that's a really big deal. That's the antithesis of what Jesus mm-hmm. represented. So I don't think we can give into that and and expect things to reflect well on the church if we do. Yeah. What about yeah. shame? That that's a really good insight. What about you, Scott? What do you think? So I'll talk about it from the recipient and the the aggressor's standpoint. Um, you know, the the, the recipient it, it it can potentially be demoralizing. Um, you know, you mentioned the rise in suicides, especially among teens, but not only teens. I've I've got two pastor friends who are very active on social media. Um, who took their own lives in the last year. Uh, and I'm not saying that social media was necessarily at the center of, of those tragic, irreversible decisions, but, but um, shame is such a, a powerful demoralizer, uh, for, as you've described it, because like you said, it, it's, it's the message of there's no hope for you. You, you you are hopeless. There is no climbing out of this because of who you are and because of who you always will be. Um, that's just horrible. But then, you know, you flip it. You've, you've talked beautifully and thoughtfully about, you know, sort of the, the receiver experience, but the, the aggressor uh, of, of, of shaming, there, there's, a, there's a psychology to that as well. Um, there's a psychology to contempt. Um, you know, people who, who tend to act with the most contempt toward others are also those who feel the most self-contempt. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's a, it's a deflection strategy. It's a, it's a, um, I don't have to deal with me, uh, as long as I can deal with him or her, I don't have, I don't have to deal with me, which of course traces back to uh, a deficit in, in awareness of the resource that Christ has given for us to look the worst uh, in ourselves square in the face and not feel threatened and not be threatened because Christ has exposed us completely and not rejected us. He's, he's, he knows us you know, to the bottom of, of the recesses of who we are and loves us completely and chooses us again and again and again uh, at the beginning, at the end, uh, and at the end of our very best and our very worst days. And David, after the Bathsheba event, you know, what's the message that comes from the prophet after the prophet confronts him and exposes him? You're not going to die. <laughs> you deserve to but you're not going to instead you're going to write half the Psalms and, and you're going to be a great leader. And I'm, I'm going to, I mean, can you imagine what, what had to happen in Bathsheba's heart to end up marrying David after all of that, right. Mm. And having Solomon with him, whose name meant peace and beloved of God. Right. Um, and, and, you know, Saul of Tarsus, uh, you know, who's presiding over the first Christian martyrdom of Stephen and on his way to actively, destroy the people of Jesus. And that's when, when Jesus says, you're my instrument, you know, for the, for the Gentiles, you know, and, and if we lose sight of, of how significant and sizable the grace of God is, and not only this, but how immediate our access is to that, the only thing left is self-contempt because we're never going to forget living up to what God expects of us. We're never going to live up to our own expectations of us, right? 
um, like Pink says in that song, I'm a hazard to myself. Don't get, mm. don't let me get me. I'm my own worst enemy. I don't want to be my friend no more. You know, and 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 when we have self contempt, we, we 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 will either self destruct in one way, shape, or form or another, or we will try to destroy somebody else through character assassination or maybe even actual assassination. Who knows? So um, there's terrible psychology on both sides of it. Um, it's so destructive. So not, not picking on a particular case because unfortunately there's been so many of them, but pick a headline, any headline, whether it's a politician, a preacher, a leader who's fallen and clearly done something outside of the bounds, who's breached trust, whether that's sexual impropriety or financial impropriety or some addiction that they lied about or even lying or something that, that causes them, you know, perhaps it's a, it's a, no, you're not in leadership for a season or for a long time, kind of offense. What is the better process? Because there is so much blaming and shaming. It is that mob mentality that you've hinted at. It's that we want this person gone. Boom, they're gone. You know, the board fired them. What is an alternative scenario? In Or is it just, nope, you got canceled and you're done? Yeah. Well, I think that um, the, the shaming, I think it's tempting to do. But on a practical level, I don't think... The, the mob mentality and the public shaming and removal is ever going to lead to the real lasting change. We might get a public repentance or public groveling, but I think, you know, we're in church world. We know that shame does not lead to actual behavior change in health and a human and decision-making, long-term healthy decision-making. So to me, I just, I don't think the idea of public accountability, I don't, I don't think that's really uh, realistic to do. I don't think public accountability is it. I think you can call someone out, but accountability is meant to be done in person in close relationship. I think that's where we've got to lean into. I don't think that we're looking to excuse behaviors. I think we need to be able to say this was wrong, but we need to be able to leave it up to the people who are in actual relationship close enough to the to the actual person close enough to this scenario to be walking alongside them to make the determination of how they get back into the community or leadership or whatever that looks like. But that's not, that's above our pay grade as well. When it comes to, you know, the, the social media platforms, that's not for us to decide. Mm. Scott, what's your take? Yeah, I agree. I mean, public accountability is, is gross um, because it's, it's toxic. It, it, it doesn't require, it's like pornography. Ooh. What does pornography do? It, it objectifies a, a, a human being taking their personhood away from them. Uh, it, 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 it's after the experience of a personal rush that, that costs you nothing and costs them their dignity, uh, costs them, uh, something significant, right? And it, 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 yeah, out, the outrage, public outrage and shame without reciprocal accountability uh, works just like pornography emotionally and psychologically and socially. And um, I, I just, I can't think of anything good to, to, to say about it. And not to mention that the, the information is usually inaccurate. And so you're you're holding somebody accountable for something that they probably didn't even actually say or do or think or feel. Or perhaps not in the same way that you believe I mean, that they did said, yeah. It's crazy, you guys. Like sometimes I I you know, if my publisher would let me, I'd get off Twitter entirely. 
because it, it, it's just so striking how there are people out there. And you, you gave me the whole don't wrestle with pigs thing, Carrie. Maybe oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk yeah. about that. They both get dirty. But and it's striking that people yeah. who live, you know, 15 states away, you know, hiding behind some anonymous Twitter account, talk like they know you better than your wife does. You know, like, like I've got you all figured out based on this, you know, 18 character tweet that you, you know, put out there three days ago. I, I know people and it's just like, oh, come on, you guys. Um, but I don't know. So, don't so what happens when there's, you know, a Harvey Weinstein or that kind of thing? Is it, is it better just mm -hmm. not to comment? Is it like, you, you could argue that some people who needed to become, mm. you know, be brought to account were brought to account. Yeah. Like, how do you, how do you navigate yeah. that? Because I, I get asked from time to time, not a lot, I've great, great leaders following, but sometimes I'll get a direct message that's like, you know, a pastor falls and it's like, when are you going to talk about that? And I'm always left, first of all, with profound sadness for Mm -hmm. uh, the victims, for the congregation, for the people involved, yeah. and actually for the leader. Usually I yeah. feel profound sadness and usually one of helplessness. It's like, I don't actually know this leader. Well, mm -hmm. I, I don't know the facts. I don't know the background. I don't know. And I'll, I'll be reasonably well-read, but like, I don't know how I'm going to help with this conversation. I just mm -hmm. don't know. And I think if we're really honest, you both hinted at that. That's where we are on most of this stuff. It's like, that's right. I can't yeah, really I got, help. I don't, I don't know what to do. And I don't know. And if I do, like sometimes I'll walk with a leader after a problem and then I'm not going to talk about it publicly. Like that is yeah. something that I am doing privately to help a friend or, you yeah. know, I'm part of a circle of accountability or something for that person, or hopefully I'm part of whatever the long road is. And that's, that's not frequent, but when that has happened, yeah. it's like, you, that's not for a blog post. Like, I don't know. Any any thoughts on that? What is the what is the constructive role of our public profiles in a in a time like this? Yeah, I'm not sure that there is a one size fits all. I mean, I think yeah. you've hinted at when I think we run into the same problem. You know, the Harvey Weinstein's of the world are not the same as you know. Uh, I can't even think of an example, but there are there are layers. There are grades and layers, and right. yeah, so different responses. Can't yeah. take you know, one size fits all approach to it. But I just, right. you know, listening to y'all talk, I'm going, I wish more people were willing to say, that's not my place to speak mm. into it. But we have a culture. I think we have it politically. We're, we're talking about things we know nothing about, but we have an opinion about. We're willing to die on every hill, even though we're not as informed as we should be to die on that hill. Well, we're ready to die on it today. And then tomorrow, something else will get our attention, <laughs> right? But at some point, I think what, what we don't realize is we're losing our influence because we're becoming white noise. Uh, when everything is a hill to die on or when everything mm -hmm. is something to comment on, then nothing's important anymore. So I think we need to be mm -hmm. more methodical about the things that we do decide to speak out on because we're losing our influence on the things that actually matter. And Trying, we do have to that's out. such a good point. Trying to be influential actually makes you lose your influence. If you're trying to leverage your influence every time there's something, and honestly, some of it is trend jacking, right? I'm, I'm just because I know this will get a lot of clicks or I know it'll get a lot of retweets or a lot of likes. But right. Leverage over leveraging your influence makes you lose influence. Yeah. Scott, what do you do in a case like that? Like, what do you where, where do you where's the line? Where do you step in? And, and I know there's no clear answer. I just love your take on it. Friend jacking. I've never heard that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Before, sorry. Maybe I, I picked that, that up down. somewhere. But that is like, that's a great that's friend. where you just you just find a hashtag and you yeah. like. Yeah. Jump in on the social media yeah. mob and then maybe mm -hmm. you get all the retweets. We we try not to do that around here. Yeah. So I mean, 
this probably happens to you more than it does to me, Carrie, because of all the different circles you're in. But yeah, something will happen where a, a pastor on, you know, in the Midwest or on the West or East Coast, who I may have never met, um, you know, a story breaks about some behind the scenes mishandling of this or that. Um, and, you know, let's talk about the stories that are actually really complicated, where it really does require people who are in that community and maybe an outside, you know, organization to come in and look at things objectively and talk to all the relevant parties. And, you know, when I, I tend to try to do what you do, like, I don't know the situation. It's not mine to speak to, but you know what comes after that? Well, you have a public voice and you should be calling this out and you, where's you have no impulse for justice. And I'm like, I don't know what justice is in this situation, you know? And, and, and so you're kind of darned if you do darned, if you don't. Um, so don't because <laughs> you're going to be darned either way. And, and, you know, if if I'm not a necessary part of the, pro, uh, you know, a, a, a central part of the problem or a necessary part of the solution, then it's it's somebody else's problem to fix and mm. to comment on. And if they comment on it, in most cases, it probably shouldn't be done publicly because it's none of the public's business. It's it's the community's business. If you're, if you're talking about like a church scandal, for instance, so yeah. And and in the times, and I haven't done this in a few years, but you know, go back five years, and in the times where there was a resignation or a problem, if I didn't name someone, I would often run it by that person ahead of time, just to say. And 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 the filter I run things through is: is it helpful? Is it helpful? And sometimes, you know, on the on the question of of racial justice, I've I've entered that dialogue very you know, willingly, uh, with some apprehension being a white male, but I'm like, no, this is something I should not be silent on. This is something I should loan, uh, whatever I can, my influence to help some, some friends, people I really care about justice issues, I, I believe are biblical and theological. And then there are other times where I'm like, I just don't know how I can help with this one. And so I don't, mm -hmm. um, Question for you, because this is a real life situation for a lot of people. And, 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 and don't think in terms of public influence. Think of like the local pastor who's got a troll or the local business person who has a rival who's just like always like harassing him or her on social. Uh, do you have any criteria for when you block or unfollow or, or, or how do you navigate that part of your life? I've, I've probably unfollowed more people in 2020 than at any other time in my life. Just like, and, and mine is like, I don't need that drama in my daily feed. I just, you guys, you just, I don't know what it is, but like you feel you need to harangue somebody every day or some issue. And I just, it's not helping me. So I will unfollow. And I, I have criteria for blocking too, but I'd love to know where you sit on that. Scott, how about you? I mean, there's a certain tolerance level. I actually try not to block uh, people uh, unless it just feels like it's gotten to be absolutely necessary because it's just starting to feel poison, you know? Um, cause I, I don't, I, I don't want to, I don't want to cancel people, you know, mm. like I, even annoying people, I, I don't want to just cancel them. But, but sometimes, you know, like, like for instance, the, the person who this happened to me a couple of weeks ago where a person 
just took over the feed on one of my posts, I think on Instagram and just started talking about a political issue, just, mm. just like an essay about a political issue, post after post after post after post that had nothing to do with the actual thing that I'd posted on. They just went into my, and, 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 and called trend like, jacking, you know, yeah, you trending, trend jacking. Mm. Okay. Uh, and yeah. so I, I just, you know, I deleted some, some of the comments just, kind of quietly and they called me out for deleting their comments and then left more. And then I'm like, you know what? I just need to, you know, just, just click the block button. Maybe I'll unblock in a couple of weeks or something. And then they went on another social media platform and talked about how I blocked them. So, so, but it, it just felt like, you know, you're, you're invading. I wouldn't want you to come into my home and start talking about to my children about this. And you're, you're kind of coming into my space here um and and talking about something that really doesn't have anything to do with but it's it's really subjective that's that's a short answer yeah yeah and i would say it's very rare on my platform i rarely block somebody but i i will mm -hmm. sometimes unfollow for 30 days or mute a little bit if they mm -hmm. keep and you know again they're not controlling that the algorithm is one of the things mm -hmm. i actively try to do is break oh, the algorithm okay. Uh, okay i don't know that i'm successful uh yeah. what about you sarah well, you guys have much larger followings than I do. So I'm not sure that I've experienced it personally mm. enough to be able to speak that well into it. But I would say, I think the danger, it, it's kind of this double-edged sword, right? Because there is definitely this kind of poison that can come from these kinds of conversations. But on the other hand, I don't want us to forget how to engage people who don't see eye to eye with us. Yeah. So I do feel like there is you've got to be able to determine what's a bid to communicate and converse and dialogue and what's a bid to entertain or just, you know, push or, you know, push your buttons, like all that kind of thing. Um, but I, I do think I try to, it's not even necessarily engaging as much as following people on Twitter, Instagram that I know I would disagree with and that, um, but they're thoughtful. So I yes, want, I'm, yeah. I'm fine um, engaging in conversation if I know it's actual conversation and they're not looking for somebody to misspeak or or not. But I, I just think when we start to eliminate these the the differences and the people who have differences from us or who push us um, to see a different side of things and immediately um, start to dehumanize them, that you know that makes us worse as well. So I, I just think it's really complicated. I think it's constantly having to take every situation into account. But I think you guys both alluded to this earlier anonymous Twitter. If you're not showing me a real picture yeah. of you or just letters and numbers by your handle, then it's hard for me to think there's an actual person on the other yeah. side who wants that's to reach. So that to me mm -hmm. is a kind of a good indication. Mm. I would say that's where the vast majority of the blocking happens is some bot account or some weirdness. And very rarely will I, will I block another human being. And it's under circumstances similar to you. And usually there's been an exchange uh, my rule is if it was a dinner party at my house, you're free to disagree. Let me ask questions. You don't have to agree mm -hmm. with me. If I have to call the police, then mm. that's another category, right? Like if you're threatening to assault me or someone at the dinner table or you're insulting my wife and I'm asking you to leave, that's a whole other level. Uh, rarely does that happen, but yeah. Yeah, that's you ever good. talk to Bob Goff about that about this question? Carrie? I have actually. Yeah. You, have you had that conversation? Yeah. I mean, go ahead. You've well, what was the him, answer so. he gave you? Because I'm curious. I remember very well, clearly what he what he told me. He'll go onto their profile. He'll scroll through their you know stuff just to see if he can learn something about them. Pray for him. If he can find their uh, address, he'll send him a cake pop <laughs> in the mail. 
sometimes, you know, if they keep, you know, being a nuisance, he'll, he'll just hit the block button. Yeah, but, but that's what he, he said. tries to find a gracious way to respond. Yeah. And, and that's what, that's one of the reasons I asked him the question, you know, he wrote love everybody always. And I'm like, well, everybody always. And he's like, no, sometimes exactly that you scroll on the profile, try to find common ground. Uh, Mm -hmm. but you realize in the universe, there are one star review people, right? These are people Mm -hmm. who are just against everything and everybody. And that's what they do all day long. And, and it's really hard. It's like, Hey, you can do that, but it's not going to be on this channel. Because I got people who want to have a conversation and yeah. we got to model that. Okay, this has been a rich, long combo. I would love to know just a couple of quick guidelines that you think would help make everybody better. If you're like in real life and in, in the world and kind of get us out of this bad moment that we all seem to be in, what would you recommend people do? That Something they could start today or this week. I think I would, I would start with staying engaged with people who think differently. I know I've kind of hinted at that before, but... Um, one of the things that I, I wrote about in the book that my husband and I were able to experience is we went to Northern Ireland several years ago, and we kind of learned a little bit more about the history of Northern Ireland and the troubles and um, the peace walls that they built. And and it was just so fascinating to, to me to see that here was this, this uh, territory that was trying to decide its constitutional status, whether it would stay connected to the United Kingdom or join the Republic of Ireland. And there was civil unrest and violence erupting. And the government thought that if they built these peace walls, it would keep keeping each other from one another, that it would help the problem. And it was actually the exact opposite, mm-hmm. refusing to keep these parts of the neighborhoods where sides were divided and, and keeping them apart from each other did not quell the violence. It actually contributed to it. And I just think that we are on the verge of being either literally or metaphorically raising these walls where we are dehumanizing the people on the other side of them because we're not engaging with them. And, and we see that in these studies um, where we talk about sustained eye contact with a person triggers these empathetic responses in both people's brains. When we have put up these walls between people who we don't agree with, I think the opposite is true. We're turning off the empathetic centers in our brain. So I would think to be able to move forward in civil conversation is to be able to willingly put ourselves out there um, and to have conversations that make us uncomfortable and to not shy away from them because there is something really rich that comes from learning other people's experiences, looking them in the eye and seeing that there's a human on the other side of that position, even though you don't understand the position that they hold. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would say that we would, I think we should also be humble. Um, and, and, you know, we've touched on this a lot and um, let go of certainty. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about that posture and the humility of going into conversations, um, thinking that we might have something to learn from people. Um, you know, I think that there's this TED talk, I think her name's Katherine Schultz, where she does this talk about when you when you realize you're wrong and she asks the audience, you know, what does it feel like to be wrong? And they throw out words like it's embarrassing or it's humiliating. And she goes, no, that's what it feels like when you realize you're wrong. When you're wrong, it feels like being right. Like none of us are holding positions that we think are wrong. We all arrived at those conclusions legitimately in some way. And so if we could go into conversation believing, I might not have this all figured out. I'm willing to learn from you. And even from, you know, a spiritual standpoint, I believe you're made in the image of God. I'm made in the image of God. And you've got something and you're displaying something about him that I haven't yet encountered. I have something to learn about God from you, not just your worldview. And so just having that kind of posture of, I might have to change my mind on this. I don't know enough to draw a conclusion steadfastly, letting go of that idea of certainty um, in some form or fashion. But um, I think that that curiosity, the willingness to stay engaged are probably the two top things that I would say. Mm, that's great. 
What about you, Scott? Any final words for leaders who want to restore a more civil, curious, reciprocal tone to discourse? Yeah, I, I don't have much to add to all the great things that Sarah just said, except to remember that every single person is under encouraged mm. uh, and overwhelmed uh, on some level. Uh, and doesn't matter what the exterior looks like. Uh, there is a scarcity of encouragement. There's a scarcity of kindness. There's a scarcity of all the things the human heart longs for relationally. And just to, you know, hopefully approach, especially conversations that involve potential conflict, um, trying to keep in mind a posture of empathy, uh, a, a posture of the fact that this other person has their own pair of shoes. And part of my goal in this conversation needs to be to learn how to walk in those shoes. Um, otherwise, it, it, you know, civility, kindness, seeking mutual understanding become really, really difficult if empathy is taking off the table. One of our pastors, Micah Edmondson, who just came onto our team, um, you know, he, he says he's African-American. And so he's, you know, very, you know, he's a lead voice uh, in, in he and his wife both in, um, you know, racial reconciliation and justice um, conversations. And he says he thinks that the biggest problem that American society has right now is that there's a war on empathy. There's a war against empathy. Um, and, and if we could all, you know, wave the white flag, uh, and surrender in that war, um, you know, maybe, maybe we would start to get somewhere. That's good. Wow. Well, this has been really rich. Tell us both about your book. So Scott, get a new one. Your latest is called a gentle answer. And uh, what can readers expect when they pick it up? Um, it, it, this is, this is sort of a, it didn't start out this way, Carrie, but it, it, it's ended up becoming sort of a prequel to my first book, Jesus Outside the Lines, which is more of a, you know, kind of a, a, a field guide, uh, an attempt at, at a field guide to engage the different contested issues in culture in, in, a, in a thoughtful, gracious way. It's sort of more of a practical book. Uh, but this one is more about um, nurturing the, the inner life and the heart, uh, so that, so that we're, we're actually able, uh, you know, spiritually, emotionally, and dispositionally to go out and, and try to be a force for good, um, where there's so much fighting. And so, so it, it's the first part of the book is about, you know, just coming to terms with the gentleness of Christ toward you. You know, he is gentle and humble in heart. He wants to give us rest. And that's our starting point for then figuring out, okay, what does it mean for the, the spirit of gentleness to be cultivated in my own life? And, you know, some great examples from John Perkins, the unusual and likely friendship between Jerry Falwell, speaking of moral majority movement, and Larry Flint, mm. who founded Hustler Magazine, you know, the, the pornographer. Like there's a, I don't know if you guys know that story, but it's, so there's some great stories that I poached, you know, from, awesome. from but, but uh, anyway, yeah, so you can go to Amazon or wherever to find that. That's great. And Sarah, your first solo book. So tell us about it. Yeah, it's called uh, The Space Between Us, How Jesus Teaches Us to Live Together When Politics and Religion Pull Us Apart. And it's part memoir, um, just 
part discovery in my own personal life, how I was raised, um, how things started to change for me, what I've kind of learned in the process and parenting and church world and, and just kind of exposure to different worldviews and trying to see things differently. And um, the whole idea is that we know that the center is vacating when it comes to politics and religion and people are moving toward the fringes. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a bad thing when the relational space starts to grow as well. And so just figuring out a way to engage with one another, to change our posture towards one another, um, to really love like Jesus instructed us to love and have those one-on-one relationships more than getting caught up in this theory and big ideas and just really um, engage that way. And there's a great recipe at the beginning of the book too. That's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let people, we'll let people figure that out. Okay. Yeah. When they get there, yeah. but uh, I'm so grateful. And where can people find your stuff? Obviously Amazon, but do you have a website? Yes. Uh, Sarah B. Anderson.com is my website, but yeah, Amazon and barnesandnoble.com has the book. All right. Well, Scott, Sarah, so grateful for you. Thank you so much for being our little panel. And uh, hopefully we, uh, we rediscovered some civility and some calm and some sanity and some Christ-likeness as a result of this. So thank you. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks. Well, I love conversations like that. When I get together with my friends uh, and we sit down, we often talk about stuff like that. That is really fascinating to me. If you want more, including links to Scott's book, Sarah's book, you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 381. You'll find everything right there. And uh, yeah, I think this was a really helpful conversation and hopefully it just moved the needle a little bit. I think we have to learn how to be more civil heading into the future, particularly if you're involved in church leadership. I mean, we just lose so much ground so often. Otherwise, we got some fresh episodes coming up. I'm pretty excited about the lineup. Next time, you're going to hear from William Vanderblumen and we're going to talk all about what he is seeing in the world of search and succession and church leadership. Also coming up, Mark Batterson, Bob Westfall, Kayla Steckline, powerful conversation about mental health, suicide, and leadership. Uh, Let's see, Allie Worthington, Andy Stanley, John Acuff is back. Yeah. And uh, Patrick Lencioni, Rachel Cruz, Rob Palinka, the general manager of the LA Lakers, and so many others. I am so excited to do this with you. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do that. If you would be so kind as to leave us a rating and review, I would be really grateful. And now it's time for what I'm thinking about. And I'm thinking about why do we hate each other so much? Like what is going on? And this is brought to you by Promedia Fire. You can book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. And by ICM, check out this amazing report, Five Ways Churches Transform Communities by going to icm.org forward slash transform communities. So what has happened over the last few years? Why is anger the new epidemic? And I kind of wish, like I'm a Christian, so I kind of wish Christians were exempt from the trend toward anger, outrage, and division online. I think these days we're fueling it. Uh, It's almost as though if you're not outraged, like you can't have an opinion. And before I say anything else, I just want to say, look, this is something we all struggle with, okay? I love what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. He said, the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. I think he's 100% accurate on that. So why are we so combative online? Well, I think the algorithm's involved. Uh, we've talked about that before. But here, here's a couple of thoughts that can get us maybe a little more focused, and, and I hope build on what we heard from Sarah and from Scott today. Number one, you're naturally more aggressive online than you are in person. 
So I've been thinking about this a lot. I remember reading uh, years ago that one of the reasons soldiers wear uniforms is it is much easier to shoot a uniform than it is to shoot a human being. And if you see the, you know, the the uh, just the uniform, it's like, oh, that's the enemy. And and even, you know, if you think back to tribal times, right? What did tribal people do? They put on war paint. Why? Well, it identified them. It's like, don't shoot me, shoot that person. But secondly, it dehumanized them. We don't do, I've, I've never been in the military, so I mean, I don't do that and I haven't been to war, but think about how you behave in your car, right? Like I am a little more aggressive in my car than I would be in person. And I might like zip by somebody and try to cut them off or something if they made me mad. And what have I got? I got a 3000 pound armored vehicle. That's what I have. Okay. Uh, or even the supermarket, right? If you get a shopping cart in front of you and you're like a little, you just kind of push past because you got a little bit of a padding there. Distance between people desensitizes people. It's easier to be aggressive when I can't see you. And that is true online too, right? If you are just having a conversation with someone and all you see is their avatar, you don't even look at that. And you're just like, you're an idiot, right? It's just a lot easier. I read an email in my inbox, the public inbox today, and the guy simply said, you're an idiot. Guess what I did? I didn't respond. Anyway, thank you for that, love. Appreciate it. Secondly, um, <laughs> this is just true, Okay. Hate generates more clicks than love. We live in an attention economy. And if you want to get people to read what you're saying and to follow you, be a little bit outraged, okay? Outrage spreads faster than something that is not outrage. That's what Tristan Harris from The Social Dilemma says. I think he's right. Uh, hate just generates more clicks than love. And if you are caught up in like becoming famous or well-known or gaining traction online, hate is a good way to do it. It always makes the news. I don't think that's a really good legacy to leave, but but that's just true. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's true. Third, any attention can feel better than no attention. A lot of us are lonely these days, okay? And thanks to technology, we've never been more connected than we are today, and we've never felt more alone. And sometimes lonely people will settle for any attention they can get. And when you feel nothing, a click, a like, or a comment can make you feel something. So I think a lot of people who are just stuck online, it's like, their life isn't very exciting in real life. So it's like, this is where I get my my kicks. And that isn't good. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just trying to explain it. And it's like, when I see this stuff in me, I'm like, oh, I gotta, I gotta pay attention to that because that's not the life I wanna live. That's not the legacy I wanna leave. Another one, and I'll, I'll leave it here, okay? Anger can get you heard even when you have nothing to say. Most people would say the opposite of love isn't actually hate, it's indifference. And I think that's true. Um, but sadly, anger can get you heard even when you have nothing to say. So you can just say, okay, no one's paying attention to me. I want to be heard. So I'm just going to take this guy on, or I'm going to try to take this person down, or I'm going to try to cancel this person. And I guess the big question is, do we really want to be like that? Like, is this the world you want to live in? Is this the world you want your kids to grow up in? Is, is this what you want to be known for? You know, at your funeral, you want people standing around you going, well, if he was one thing, he was angry. I mean, I don't want that. And, and I feel those impulses too sometimes. So here's some questions to ask the next time you post, write, respond, comment, shoot that email, um, you know, send that text. Ask yourself, what's my real motive? And what's my real motive? Am I trying to help? Am I trying to hurt someone? Because if you're trying to hurt someone, that's kind of evil. Or am I trying to just get noticed? And it can be really interesting. It's like, yeah, I want to be noticed. Okay, well, that's your real motive. Now you know. Now you know, right? 
And then, and then ask this question. This is a big one. And I think about this for every episode. That's why I wanted to make this a constructive episode about a decon, you know, you know, a difficult subject, but are people better off or worse off for reading what I've posted or for listening to what I've shared? So you've listened for a good hour plus, you know, are you better off? I hope so. That was the goal. If not, I need to do better. Okay. But I want when you read something I wrote, when you see something online, when you watch a video that I filmed, when you listen to a podcast that I did, I want you to be better off. I want you to be better educated. I want you to feel encouraged. I want you to feel inspired. And yeah, that doesn't mean you have to, you know, it's not all gumdrops and sunshine. That's a bad expression. But anyway, um, you know, so we, we deal with really tough issues, but hopefully in a way that make things better, not worse. And then, and then how about this? Am I calling out the worst in people or attempting to bring out the best? That's a great question. Am I just, am I just being really difficult and calling out the worst or am I attempting to bring the best out of you? That's what this episode is about. We're trying to bring out the best in you. Okay. And then finally, here's a great question. If the person I'm responding to or communicating with was in the room looking me in the eye, would I say the same thing in the same way? Right? If you're actually there, no uniform, no car, no online, no avatar. You're just actually talking to another human being. How would you interact with that human being? And then why don't you just behave that way online? That would be, I think, a good thing. So I hope that helps. I also take the time to uh, process privately and help publicly. So I get mad too, but hopefully I deal with that in my prayer time with a counselor, et cetera, et cetera. And then I try to help publicly. Anyway, try to make the dialogue better. That's what this episode was about. We're back next time with a fresh one. Really appreciate you in leadership. Hang in there. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.